Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. How have you? Good. I think, Michael, we will start this show with a joke. But don't worry, not like a joke the last time where I made you laugh at the death of a person. I'd like to move on from that, if we can. I mean, we would all like to, Michael, but that just shows our disregard for his actual death. I mean, the family, they'll find it difficult to move on. And we should really be thinking of them, Michael. You're going to tell me a joke, Gary. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a joke from Simon Coveney. I thought it was very well put together. It's this. It's, uh, he said it to the Irish uh, Independent. My career isn't a vanity project. I really want to contribute to public life. Okay, I see what you did there. You're being sarcastic. You're suggesting that, in fact, Simon's career has been nothing but a vanity project. Uh, and I think you're being very, very unkind. Uh, very. I don't, well, I don't think that was a joke. I think it was sincerely and deeply meant. And you know what, Gary? I believe that if Simon really, really gives himself over completely, he may actually sometime make a contribution to Irish society that isn't actually wholly negative and based and rooted in vanity and stupidity. Because I believe in him. It's good to see where your sympathy lie, Michael. Not with a woman brutally cut down in her prime, but with Simon Coveney. You are a horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> so there's a couple of things to, to go through. We've got Matt Hancock and his inexplicable trust for people he really shouldn't trust. Uh, we've got a little bit, just a, a mention on some of the Irish crime stats. But Michael, I just wanted to, to start with a headline in The Independent now, this is about a, a survey. They give absolutely no real details about the survey other than the sample size, which actually is a massive step up for an Irish media outlet. But it looks like it was carried out between um, Airbnb hosts, people who own Airbnbs, uh, rental properties, effectively. You mean, you, Gary, you mean the people who are responsible for homelessness in Ireland? Yes, yes, the people who are generally blamed for homelessness in Ireland. Because, well, you know, someone's got to be blamed and it's not going to be the government or the housing charities. Although this is a good point to remember that the uh, bedsits were banned largely because of the work of housing charities demanding that they be you know, banned. Well, now, Gary, let's face it. I don't think that anybody could reasonably be have been expected to understand that if you took twenty or 25,000 low-cost units out of the housing market, that it might have an effect on the market. I mean, you would have had to have been some kind of Nostradamus to understand that you, if you took 20 or 5 or 30% of the rental units out of the market, that that would have an effect on the rest of the market. Nobody predicted it. Nobody suggested that would happen, I'm sure. I mean, so let's be fair. It's all very well saying you, know, you got it wrong. But nobody could have predicted that. Nobody could have predicted that creating impossible conditions and... 40% increase in cost, in house cost bills would have an effect on the new build of the houses. These are just things that happened. Anyway, go on. What was this? What were the Airbnb plutocratic? Because remember, these people are almost always people who own more than one house or property, as they call them. What were they saying, Gary? So again, this was uh, what the Independent describes, uh, or sorry, this survey was carried out by what the Independent describes as community leaders for Airbnb. 
take that as you will with with the required amount of salt. But the headline uh, figure is nine out of ten Airbnb hosts would rather leave their units idle than rent it out to long term tenants. Which, assuming the accuracy of it, which we will do to some degree, given I haven't actually seen the survey, would seem to put a bit of a pin in the government's uh, and the NGO's plans to use, um, basically, force Airbnb out and use those homes to solve the homelessness crisis, which is a bit of a problem if it turns out the people with them just will never deal with tenants. As regards the accuracy, I would probably get on board with it. That sounds about right to me, simply because in other places at other times, similar studies have been done. And generally speaking, one of the reasons that these people have houses that they're using for A or B and B, one of the reasons is that they don't want to get involved in long-term tenancy agreements. No, Gary, there are many, many reasons why they don't want specifically to be involved in that. And one of them is they say, I don't know where they get this from, Gary, but they say that they're worried about increasing levels of regulation in the long-term tenancy market and excessive levels of difficulty ensuring security of the property and making sure that people don't end up staying longer, doing all sorts of other things that they don't want to do. There is also, I would say, probably an economic element to this. If you can get a fairly decent turnover of Airbnbs in Dublin, Gary, would you say you're earning, you have to be earning more money, wouldn't you, than if you're just doing a a long-term tenancy? I would say you're you're probably earning multiples of it. Well, this obviously, this just goes to the heart of the problem, Gary. You have people here with their private property rights at a time of a national crisis where we have tens of thousands of people living uh, in unacceptable conditions. And these people, two and three properties, and, and maybe more, saying, no, they don't want to do something. And, you know... I think the time has come for some fairly serious action. This notion about untrammeled private property rights in the Constitution has to be dealt with. And maybe we need a... Con- Do you think maybe, Gary, if we had a citizens' assembly on the subject, that would be a good way of going about it? Well, Michael, I think, like all citizens' assemblies, that would depend on if we picked the right person to head it and made sure they brought in the right people. Yeah, but we've always done that up to now, every any citizen assembly we've done, we've always we've had the care to make sure that we have picked the right people to head it, and the right people to advise in a completely neutral and impartial way all the people at it, and to get the right people in uh, as the citizens. So I th- I, I'd, I'd be confident that if we set up a citizen assembly, it would come out with the right result. You were correct, by the way, without me telling you, that um, when people give reasons for why they would leave their properties vacant rather than um, give them, put basically regularize them as, as rental um, properties. The two most common reasons were that it was too close to their own home, which would make sense because a lot of people will uh, rent out granny flats or, or you know converted structures on their land, which often doesn't have the right planning permission, which is terrible, Michael. Just awful. awful. You should resign from whatever job you have. If you've made some kind of a false declaration on a planning application. The other version or the other concern they had was long-term tenants' rights, which is a very polite way of saying what the concern actually is. 
Is there a concern, really? That the, um, well, like, you, when you start going into this, you start running into things like, you know, eviction bans and rent freezes and the fact that it is basically impossible to get rid of a tenant who is willing to do certain things or to ignore certain things. As if we've created a system, Michael, where if you are a bad landlord, you can get away with quite a lot if you're willing to behave unethically. And if you're a bad tenant, you can get away with quite a lot if you're willing to behave unethically. And if you're a good version of either of those things, you're in a prime position to get fucked. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And in a manner which is unsafe and unlubricated. And some might say, Michael, that that is an indication of bad policy formation. If you create a system in which those willing to abide by all of the rules are basically prey animals for those who don't. I would say that might indicate that perhaps you might need to look at the area again. You, you, you could say that, Gary, I couldn't possibly comment. Well, actually, of course, I could have come. And I, and I shall. We have seen an absolute bunfest, Gary, of bad policy making in this area. Uh, somebody, oh, who was it, wrote an article, quite a trenchant piece there in the last week or so, talking about the, the nonsense of the myth that Philly Gale in government was anything but a left wing party. Because if you looked at a city, I, one particular policy area, it might have been housing, I'm not sure, that they had basically just picked up. Uh, the policies of not just the left, but the ultra-left, which is a phrase I heard during the week, which I thought, oh, because we, we don't have a far left or we don't have a hard left. So somebody was on the radio and they referred to the ultra-left. I thought, oh, okay, ultra, the ultra-left. So the ultra-left. You know, there's the old there was story about uh, the Tories in the, the 1860s uh, when they, the Israeli robbed a whole load of Gladstone's policies and the, the joke was that he'd come across Gladstone had been swimming in the Thames and just really found his clothes and so and had put on his clothes and walked off in them. And that was the the the, the, the and I think that's the kind of metaphor I I'm struggling for here with with Philip and Finnegan over the last X number of years. There has not been one policy that has been anything but fire jaded iteration of historically failed policies because not one of these ideas is new not one of these ideas is new fresh or has worked any the refusal to look beyond well i'm not it's not it's not fair i was going to say there was a refusal to look at the supply they talk a lot about supply and eventually when you have a market like this supply will start to get going once you have actually overcome that point at which it stops building a house or a property in Dublin, stops being loss-making, then people start to build houses. You know, it's not mysterious. But since the government, through its own policies, has raised that point far higher than it needs to be, the, the house building started slower and later than it had to do. But they still are stuck on this notion that you can take this supply, which is inadequate, and by doing things like changing lease agreements or changing tenancy agreements, stopping evictions. That Okay, I'll ask you this, Gary. What do they think happens since it's possible to... In one, of the way, one of the reasons you can get somebody out is to sell a house for whatever reason. 
What do they think happens to rental properties when non-paying or disruptive tenants are evicted from them? Because they talk about them as if they disappear and this causes an increase in the shortage of available rental accommodation. I'm not sure they think anything happens, Michael. I'm not sure there's an understanding of causality or really of consequence here. One of the most interesting things I found here, and it doesn't really get brought up, but it's actually very impactful, is this. Rental properties that get sold, uh, as in small um, landlords moving out of the market and selling and rental property becoming residential, which are all told is this, you know, massively beneficial thing. And I imagine that'll be the response to this Airbnb sector uh, survey of just, well, that, you know, they, they won't leave the mile, they'll sell them. And then the residential market will, will, will have the benefit of that. Here's the problem, though. When property moves from rental to residential, a very interesting thing happens. The average amount of people using that asset or that house goes down, often substantially, because it turns out people don't like living with four other people if they have a chance of just, you know, them and their partner being there. So every rental property that actually becomes residential, one would expect that to make the rental crisis worse. And that is that there is the housing crisis, but there is also a rental crisis. I mean, that's why rents have gone totally out of whack. And yet at the same time, we have small landlords moving out from what should be an absolute boon for them because the tax treatment is terrible the um the general treatment of income is terrible for landlords and also the long-term rights are so onerous if you want to do things properly but uh we don't really seem to have much recognition that it's you you can't simply take one property turn it into the other type and say well we're winning no you're actually probably going to make things worse and uh, isn't that not a great thing? But again, Michael, this all started, uh, or well, not all started, but a lot of this started under uh, Simon Coveney. Maybe that's our problem, Michael. We, we took the phrase, I really want to contribute to public life, and we added in positively after it. But he never said that. He never said that. No, no, this is true. You know, he, he just wanted to make a contribution of some kind, and we just filled in that blank. We made the assumption that, that uh, it would be a positive one. Here's just a, a, a different story. I just wanted to mention, this is, is not really in the news or anything. It's just something I've been working on in my desperate attempt to get stats about things that are happening in Ireland. And it's about what's called the crime detection rate, Michael, which is a very odd name for what is basically this. A crime is classed as detected when it either moves forward and criminal proceedings have been commenced, or a decision is made not to prosecute, or in certain cases where there's children, if they've been dealt with in accordance with juvenile programs. Basically, the de- the detection rate, the way this is done, it's given as the percentage of criminal offences that have been reported to the guards, which have been closed out, basically. You know, the guards have done their job. Sorry, you're talking here, closed out. I mean, 
Does that include like would that include cases where they've officially and definitively come to the position where there isn't uh, enough evidence to go forward and the case is closed because they they have no suspects or they have no no and no prospects of going forward? Are those cases just left in limbo? Is that would they be included in those figures? Yeah, so cases where you know a decision has been made not to prosecute, where they've. You know, instead of criminal charges, cautions, things, uh, fixed charge notices, something has happened, basically. Um, and the guards, they're finished. They're, they've done their part. So, again, you'd assume that would be near to 100% in most things, because if it isn't, it just means a lot of stuff is just staying on the books, as it were, maybe not being actively worked on. Uh, so I've been trying to look through it, and the problem here is that the guards' data is so bad that the CSO um, basically don't trust it. And because I've been talking to a couple of people in the CSO, the area in which it was apparently one of the worst was in relation to detection rates, because you have to know how many complaints have been made and what's happened to them. So here's a fun little game, Michael. I'll give you a crime and you tell me what the detection rate is for it. Okay, I'm suspicious already. You're framing this. Okay, go on. Why don't we try... Threats to kill or cause serious harm. Threats to kill or cause serious injury. Now again, this you would expect to be pretty high, particularly because if someone is reporting that someone has threatened to kill them, presumably they know who has threatened to kill them. So you'd think you'd be off to a strong start right there. Yeah, it would be no more often than it would be anonymous, I suppose, or it wouldn't have the same effect. Uh, 70%. Is that your final answer? Yes, I don't want to use any of my lifelines at this stage. It's usually about 32% in a year. 32%. Which is, again, to say that nearly 70% of threats to kill or cause serious harm aren't closed off on. Maybe they're working away, Gary. Are they not working away like busy little bees, trying to get more information, get more evidence, trying to get somebody to come forward, trying to find a witness, trying to get the forensics, you know? Because it's not all CSI, Gary. Sometimes those tests took a long time to get back, or maybe there might be a queue in the lab. Or There will absolutely be cases there where they're going to work on them, and you know, it might take a couple of years for something to come of it. But it's not a great number. What about burglary, Michael? Where do you think burglary is? Very serious crime. It's an invasion of someone's home. Actually, far more serious than we usually kind of treat it. Burglary? I, well, I regard burglary as a very serious thing because uh, I've seen the effect that burglaries have had on uh, people near to me and near neighbours. Elderly women, uh, you know, a couple of elderly women who've been burglary, and it was horrible for them because it, but other than the, the obvious shock that someone's in, been in your house, somebody has handled your private property, your intimate things, but then just your sense of your security in your own house. Both ladies were widows and they, it took them years, literally, I mean several years before and they've said to me that they felt comfortable again in the house and at night if people come to the door and they don't know or they're not expecting them they find that they have, they become very anxious and worried again. Well, now, you say burglary, I was I saw some numbers, Gary, I, I had meant to send over to you and I didn't, which were uh, figures from the United Kingdom and the, a list of what were considered to be not serious crimes and included on that was burglary. And I was in the, the, the these were crimes which were not being prosecuted. They weren't really even being investigated. And apparently there's been a decision, and this is not just in the UK, the, this man argued. But all over the Western world, increasingly, police forces are not bothering 
to attempt to investigate what they consider to be minor crime. And this has all sorts of consequences, some criminologists would say, on sort of wider society and also possibly on more serious crime. So I'm guessing that this is law. I mean, if threats to proper threats were like 32%. By the way, he quoted somebody who is apparently an expert in this area that said that actually today, a lot of burglaries with the confluence of forensic science and of the proliferation of CCTV in the United Kingdom were actually fairly easy to solve if people had a desire to solve them. Anyway, uh-huh. I'm going to go... You said 32% of that, so I'm going to go 30%. Yeah, 50 to 20 15 to 20. Uh-huh. Usually more towards the, like, 17, 18. Um, the interesting thing when you look at these stats certain crimes the guards do very well at. So controlled drug offences, Michael, for instance, usually about 90%, above 90% on the detection rate. A cultivation or manufacture of drugs, same. Disorderly conduct, those sort of things. The problem, uh, homicide, by the way, actually pretty solid on you, 75 to maybe 80, somewhere in that range. Human trafficking offences, Michael, uh, in 2020, 5% 5% detection rate. So, And these are cases where a complaint has been made to them. I, I don't know if I would regard 75% as being a, tri- a triumph, because we're not talking like 75% in this case doesn't mean prosecution and conviction. No, but it, like, it, it means the guards have done their job. The one I find most interesting, though, and this ties to the other work that I've done on this, um, is rape. Because, Michael, as we all know, rape uh, reports have doubled since 2011, and they've continued to go up uh, this year. And the guard's response is that this is due to increased uh, reporting, although I note that they have slightly changed their language since I wrote an article on this, and now it is maybe due to increased reporting. Ha! <laughs> Uh, I went to the guards, by the way, about that claim, uh, because the guard, the commissioner, had made it multiple times across reports and speeches, and the guards didn't say no when I asked them for evidence that he was correct, or asked what evidence is backing up this statement. They said they would refuse to comment. They refused to comment on the comments of the person who runs their organisation. They're obviously busy doing something else, and you were just annoying them. I, it's uh, it's it's odd. I mean, considering we are living in consistently supposed to be sort of more enlightened and less violent times, the figures for sexual assault against uh, women are really weird. You know, your you, the figures you quoted for Ireland. Now it's over a longer period of time, but in Sweden, right? In Sweden, in 1975, there were 421 reported uh, rapes, sexual assaults against women. In 2022. That number had gone up, Gary, to 9,162. That's an increase of over 2,000%. When I read that, Gary, I thought, do you know what I thought, Gary? I thought of one thing immediately. I'll give you one guess. What did I think? Thank God these women have become so much more willing to come forward and talk about their uh, incidents. Uh, but by God, isn't it odd that they seem to be clustered in certain areas? Well, no, I did think that also. I, 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 and I, I think we should certainly should be studying the Swedish police force and their communications because obviously their capacity to get women to come forward uh, 
and report sexual assault. And the increasing levels, uh, the increasing levels, like a 2,000% increase, they, their communication strategy obviously is very, very good. No, the other, the first thought I had was cost, I was actually El Salvador, Gary. I thought, you know what? Maybe the, if you've got an increase of 2,000% in rate, maybe you need a little bit of El Salvador. El Salvador, that guy over there, that, uh, naive Bukele that we talked about last time, he might have some interesting ideas how to solve those issues there. But I don't know if those ideas would work in Sweden. But no, I rephrase that. I think they might work in Sweden. I don't know if they would be acceptable to the Swedish political sensibility. And I say that with greatest respect of the, to Swedish respect to sensibility. Really. I wonder if the Swedish have done what we've done, which is say that this is due to people being uh, increasingly willing to come forward, but made absolutely no attempt to survey or ask the general population uh, in order to determine if those within it who report that they've been sexually assaulted or raped are actually more willing to come forward. Strange thing. Strangely, when I, I went rooting around for explanations of why this had happened, the, uh, there was there seemed to be almost a, a almost a sense at an official level of we are not going to answer that kind of question because it's like they felt that the question was loaded some way, Gary, or carried some kind of agenda rather than simply being a question which the numbers would demand you have to ask. It might be awkward politically, Michael, if let's say there was some study done and it was found that actually women were not more likely to come forward but that rather there was some relationship michael with bringing in particular groups of people from areas which have very different views on things like rape and sexual assault and that when you bring in those people they bring their views with them rather than coming in and then immediately acclimatizing to the culture that they are in. And that there should be perhaps, Michael, some control or checking of the people you're coming in in order to avoid that happening. Because obviously in any group, Michael, there will be good and bad people. And there will be people with different cultural views. And that uh, maybe that should have been a concern before it happened. I don't know if in practice how you would do that. And, you know, there are going to be apples of different kinds in any group. But fundamentally, human beings are all the same. And is there any real difference? I mean, Sweden doesn't really have a culture. So, I mean, uh, uh, the, the foreign minister said that. So. Oh, and um, on the, the note in Ireland that the, the numbers are going up because women are more willing to go to the police office uh, yes. about this, from talking to people who have been raped and sexually assaulted in Ireland, because, as I said, I've done a bit of work on this, that has not been my experience, that people feel a great deal of faith in the police. I would also note that the detection rate for rape and sexual assault has been going down since 2018. 2018 being the oldest stats we have on this, because, again, the guards were unable to accurately pull together statistics before then. The rate in 2018, Michael, was 20 percent In 2020, it was 20%. And the figures for 2021, which are provisional and I would imagine will be uh, will be brought upwards, were are currently 12%. Now, I would expect that to get to about 20% uh, when it's reviewed. But again, Michael, that's not the cases that go to pro- uh, prosecution. That's the cases the guards have basically finished investigating. And you would assume, on that basis you maybe want to try and close the book on more than 20% of rape and sexual assault claims. It might just be good, Mike. It's not, it's not Japan, Gary, you know? Mm. Well, it's, it's a different culture, and the guards face a challenging environment, and, you know, we can't expect miracles. The general 
twist or a general overview, by the way, of the detection rates is that certain crimes the guards are very good at. But if you fall victim to you know low level crime, uh, assaults, well, sexual offences are not really low level crime, but things of that nature, Michael, you usually have less than a third, you know, thirty three percent chance that it the investigation even concludes. If the crime you're convicted of is being found in possession of a prohibited substance by a policeman, you know, it's not exactly hard to work out with. Uh, guard says, I caught him, guard, I caught him, judge, with the cannabis. And you go, ah, but it was only a little bit of cannabis. Ah, but it was cannabis. And we caught you with it. Well, to be fair to the guards, that's going to include a lot of the guards just running across someone using a drug, which is pretty much an immediate solve. But it's also going to include people who report drug usage that they've seen. So the guards are going to have to go out and investigate that. So there is... You know, How many people do that? There's no figures for it, um, but provisionally I would say you'd probably be surprised by the amount. I would be very surprised that people are picking up the phone and saying, I saw somebody smoking joints outside the Vixen last night. You should do something about that. If you want to burn down your house uh, in order to claim an insurance payment, the detection rate on arson is generally about 10 to 15%. So, like, you know, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying... It looks like if you do it and you put any sort of effort into it, guards aren't going to waste a lot of time looking into it. Something to remember, yeah. Blackmail, sub 10% clearance rate. Or extortion. So, like, you know, carjacking and the unlawful seizure of an aircraft or vessel is about 25%. (laughs) The unlawful seizure. So, hijacking aircraft. How how often does that happen? when was the last time in your lifetime you remember somebody in the Irish jurisdiction hijacking an airplane? You see, the problem here is I imagine they've combined it with carjacking because it happens so rarely. But now you've just created a hilarious offence, which, I mean, we can imagine, Michael, that that's mostly people stealing boats. It isn't, but we can imagine it. You're stopping a Volvo on the Belgard Road and saying, take me to Cuba. I'm claiming asylum. <laughs> I want $5 million at a helicopter immediately. So, Matt Hancock, oh, yes, Michael. Yes, yes, yes. The yes, former yes, yes, yes. health secretary of the UK, a man who kisses in the same way that Mark Zuckerberg eats toast, as we all know from the videos of him with a woman who is not his wife. Certainly, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg eats toast. Look at video. There's a video of, of, of Mark Zuckerberg eating a piece of toast, Michael, and you will see it and you will immediately think... There's something wrong with the way that man ate toast. And you won't be able to explain it, because it shouldn't be possible to eat toast in a wrong way. But when you see it, it's wrong. It's like a Lovecraftian thing, where you just get a feeling that something here is not lining up. He ate toast. He's the only person I've ever seen to eat toast in this way, by the way. And it, again, you can't explain it. But if I find the video, I'll put it below in the link, and we can all see it. The man eats toast incorrectly, and Matt Hancock somehow kisses incorrectly. That's the only way I can describe it. But that's not important right now, Michael. I'm sorry, but I just have to say, as somebody deeply interested in the philosophy of language, the sentence, he eats toast in the wrong way. I don't know what that... I'm, I, shall, I shall go away and think about this notion. He eats toast wrongly. Anyway, Mark Hancock, 
Go on. So Matt Hancock was the former UK Health Secretary. He had to resign after having uh, an affair which was caught on camera. And Matt Hancock is a um, figure of a certain amount of derision and a um, people have a certain view of his capabilities. An attempt to fight back against that and put the best foot forward and put himself out there, he decided he was going to write a diary of his time in power. And as part of that, he gave 100,000 WhatsApp messages, apparently without filtering them first, to a journalist. Now, he had that journalist sign an NDA, and he apparently thought that was enough. It turns out, though, it wasn't, and that journalist gave all of them to The Telegraph, which have been subsequently releasing little bits of it, generally in a way that makes Hancock look pretty bad. It looks like Hancock didn't do any filtering before he sent these uh, messages over, and there's a lot of stuff in there about what he thinks about his colleagues and things like that. However, there was a particular message released there the other day, which is legitimately deeply damaging. Because he starts saying things like, we will frighten the pants off everyone with the new strain. Things like, when do we deploy the new variant? And just a general sort of line of, and we're going to use this to promote the vaccine. He was also a bit, and he was was a bit annoyed that when they were when they, they were going to do this lovely thing, which they were quite excited to do, that the Brexit talk kept on distracting people from the new variant, which was really tedious. Uh, yes. So whatever about whatever about Hancock thinking these things, because these things are always going to be thought about, because these are people who want to get compliance, and fear is a very good way to get compliance. That's one of the best ways to get yes. compliance. Very good. The problem there is these are conversations you have on the phone, Michael, or in person. In person is better, but the phone will work. And you don't write them down. And by God, if you write them down, you don't give them to a journalist who is well known for their absolute opposition to what your government did. Yeah. No, she did She did sign a non-disclosure. Yes. The, the problem there, Michael, is that non-disclosure agreements usually have some penalty attached to them. I would imagine in this case they had a financial penalty attached to them. The problem here is if you have 100,000 texts from the health minister over the COVID period and you go to a newspaper who were very against the government's policies during that period and go, oh, if I give you this, I'm going to have to pay X amount of money. Please give me twice X amount of money. They will do that. (laughs) Yes, there is that. But Gary, one's own personal sense of honour, truthfulness and decency might also be part of the decision whether or not you decided to break an agreement which you had freely entered into. I mean, what did what? I'm sorry, what did she think she was going to do? This is Matt Hancock, Gary. Now, Matt Hancock was not, shall we say, the most popular and beloved of health secretaries in the United Kingdom. He was not widely seen as being very good at his job, frankly. He was not seen as being competent. He was not seen as being a good communicator. But also, he was the guy who was in the middle of the shit show when the COVID stuff hit, and she had an opinion about that. Telegraph had an opinion about it. What precisely did she think she was going to discover? I I thought, I think I, none of this makes sense to me. None of this makes that that you have these conversations on WhatsApp fine because I I think that people 
One of the things this shows yet again, Gary, and this is true, this is nothing to do with age in the sense that, oh, people aren't used to the internet, or people, old people don't know. Ten-year-olds forget this as much as they. Once you commit something like this, it is there and you have now created something which is forever. And it's like you said, these are things that, if you're going to say these things, you should say them face-to-face to people. And then you're, once the sound has dissipated into the ether, unless your friend has decided to create a recording of you, then it's gone. But these WhatsApp messages, I mean, God, the WhatsApp trails out there, and no WhatsApp trails I have left myself would hang most men. I can't imagine Hancock is terribly popular with his peers, co-workers, and civil servants right now. He wasn't popular when he was doing this, and it was private. He was deeply unpopular. He was widely regarded as the, the least liked man of the Tory party when he was the Secretary for Health. Today... Today, I think that if if they could, they would take him out to a quiet place in the shires and shoot him with balls of his own shite. There is a um, there is a general tone amongst the messages that have come out when his colleagues are talking to him or talking with him, of they are dealing with him like you would deal with a not especially bright child whose father is important. My whatever about the content of these, I am boggled by. The fact that these messages exist and the fact that he gave them to someone that was, should we say, Michael, quite likely to betray him, given their stance on things, their relationships, their previous behaviour. Like, it is a Soviet march of red flags. And he still did it. It's so far as I understand it. He made no attempt to go through these and filter them. No, these appear to be a 100,000 unredacted, unsorted, unfiltered messages which involve multiple of his colleagues, high-ranking civil servants, and really everyone that you don't want to put out the messages of. It just also indicates, by the way, that either Hancock and, and most likely his peers in the British cabinet have incredibly poor information security. I don't understand. I, I mean, when I say I don't understand this, I genuinely mean that I don't understand any of the story. I don't understand why he would do it. I don't understand why he would give these messages to her. I don't understand why she would end up going public with this. I also, I don't understand how he felt it was appropriate to leak messages. I mean, WhatsApp messages if he that he sent himself, whatever, but that he that inevitably this leaks conversations that he was having with the other members of his government and there would have Gary there has to be when you have these communications there's an assumed level of of security not the word security not the word privacy but your confidentiality surely if you're having this conversation you assume that the other your interlocutor is going to understand that these are private conversations and he is absolutely ruptured that sense uh, that his colleagues would have had with him that he they were actually having a reserved private conversation that he was going to keep these things confidential. It's a terrible betrayal of trust. The whole thing is horrible. It just confirms once the sense one had of Matt Hancock, the man and the politician. But you know, listen, Gary. I think before we we we're, we're pushing on here now, we need to get on to what is the funnest story of the week. I mean, there actually there were a lot of fun stories this week. I don't know why, because sometimes we we're trawling desperately through them, trying to find stories. 
um, we had the Belgians killing the woman who had murdered five of her children because she didn't like being uh, in prison. You fit to know tool telling us that the reason the people shouted uh, asylum seekers is not because they're stupid, because they enjoy it. They enjoy it, Gary. There was a bizarre story in the Irish Times, which was something to do with single-sex schools. I think that's going to be an increasing thing. There's a little prediction for the listeners out there. They are, If anybody out there is involved in Catholic education and has said they're coming for your schools, people, uh, they have already started, but they are going to come. But the best one is people before profit have are all anxious and worried, Gary, that the guards and the army are going to gang up on them. Yeah, I'm just going to open this by saying that whatever about the guards, uh, the military, if, if Fine Fáil and Fine Gael wanted them in you know, a coup-ready state, Michael, they'd probably be paying them better. <laughs> that would be like, just on the logistics of this, unlikely. They also love, this was done... This was done in the context that they were launching their case for a left government. Yes, yeah, so they have released a, a new uh, policy document, which is, yes, the case for left government, getting rid of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. It's available on their website. You can buy it for €5. Euro. They are using the press that was caused by Hugh O'Connell pointing out that in this document they said that there is a likelihood of a coup should a left-wing government be elected to sell it. I mean, they have a quote from Hugh O'Connell on the page to buy it, calling it an incendiary document, which is true. They have also defended the position that an armed coup is a real possibility if a left-wing government is elected. Most of what they talk about relates back to experience in South America and the CIA, which is... Shall we say, Michael, beyond the capabilities of the Irish government? I would have thought so. And I, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much the CIA is invested in protecting the, the power of Fine Gael and of Fine Fáil. First of all, the case for a left government. We have a left government. We don't need to make the case for it. We understand the case for it. Bad case. But the people have bought it. We have a left government. Now, there is now they quote the case of uh, they referred to the the overthrow of Salvador Allende by General Pinochet, which I discovered after years and years, Gary, of calling the man Pinochet after the French. Then of course, of course, it, it occurs to one because I I heard him being interviewed by somebody. He's not French. He's uh, he's 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 Chilean, and therefore he's a Hispanophone. So I, apparently the, the correct way to pronounce his name is, in fact, Pinochet. It just sounds a bit weird. Anyway, uh, Salvador Allende was taken out and killed guy. He was bombed, I believe, wasn't he? He, was, he? he refused to leave the presidential palace. Now, I would suggest that it may well be the case that the, the policies that are being proposed by people were actually are farther to the left than those policies which would be proposed by Allende. And I even go as so far as to say, Gary, if there was a government, an actual government, elected by the people of Ireland that was going to put people before profiting power, well, the first thing is that that would be the final signal to just, you know, go off and live in the south of Italy because, you know, fuck you. But, you know, there might be a very good reason to suggest that the police or the army would have a coup. Because a people before government, 
I can't see how it wouldn't immediately go after fundamental constitutional rights of the people. Because that's what these people do, isn't it? They just, they get into power and then they fuck you over. So, I mean, maybe the army would defend the constitution, like as they went and shot the judges or put us all in prison, stole all the, privatised all the private, or nationalised all the private property. Just came out. How interested do you think the CIA is in organising jet attacks on the Irish? I mean, do we have any jets that can have an attack carried, you know? Do we have any war? To the best of my knowledge, no, we don't. We'd have to get them in from somewhere. Would the English lend us some just to... Oh, God, can you imagine it? Do you think they really believe this? Do you think they actually, in their little, their little dark hearts, they actually believe this? Or is it just something they like to entertain because they give them a, a little bit of a sexual free song? Because, you know, the, the left, one of the things the left has to do is to think of itself, imagine itself as being part of the insurgency. They are the brave San Colosse out there on the streets, marching towards the Bastille to bring down the power of the great state and to liberate the prisoners inside. They talk about the elite in this gallery, but they are the elite. They're part of the elite. They're deeply embedded in the power structures of the Irish state. They're in the civil service. They're in the print and the visual media. They're in the government. How are they not part of the elite? Uh, because they're communists? Well, Trotskyites, I believe, too. They, I never quite know, you know. I'm not good on denominations outside of Christianity. So they're trots. Yeah, well, trots would make sense. I saw the Women, National Council for Women uh, is organising um, a march, which is nothing to do with this story, but um, with Lady Trots, the Rosa group, which is the Lady Trot. Just, uh, presumably they're trots. And got, Rosa Luxemburg was a trot, wasn't she? And uh, it's, uh, again, an eminently, eminently sensible and appropriate thing for a publicly funded body to be going on uh, uh, a protest march sponsored by a far-left Trotskyite group with, with, with a political affiliation. I don't think we can blame the Women's Council for that. So as I say, you know, if someone keeps punching you in the face, eventually it stops being their fault and it becomes your fault for letting them do it. The government could stop this any time it wanted by simply pointing out that they pay these groups and by God, if they don't get in line, that payment will be stopped. The figures are now so staggering that the size of it as a sector is so impressive that if you or I had a scrap of sense... A scrap of sense, Gary. We would have had decent jobs long and ever ago. Somewhere tucked up, nicely comfortable in some little NGO somewhere, trotting out Fergus Finlay's talking points and going to bed at night. Oh, yes, of course. Sedating ourselves with the absolute sense of the horror that was our internal lives. But still, be pulling down 60 or 70 grand on for a three and a half for a three day job with the chance of maybe getting on a couple of boards, a bit of a top up, you know, it would be it would be so much more sensible, Gary. Where are the where are our NGOs? Where are our NGOs, Gary? Strangely enough, there's not a lot to say about people before profits claim that uh, the elite 
will stage a coup if a left-wing government is elected. Because there's not a lot to it, Michael. It's just a sort of, and then this will happen. And you sort of go, will it, though? And the answer is no. Because if no other reason, Gary, can you imagine them organising it? No. I mean, even if they wanted to, legitimately, no. Are these people a coup? Jesus Christ, no. They weren't back in the day, back in whatever it was, 22, I mean, and the, the time of the current mutiny, when these were, you're actually dealing with men of action, men who had fought in the rising, men who had fought in the War of Independence, who'd been to prison, who understood about these things. Even then they couldn't organise a mutiny and a coup. Uh, no, absolutely not. No way in the world. Anyway, what's our friend Drew Harris? Is it Drew? Drew's far too busy going around the country trying to find people misgendering and and recording all those incidents of hate, hateful misgendering, which is uh, obviously it's not a crime, and therefore it's puzzling to us all quite why the police are involved in it. But it's going to be a crime soon, so maybe they're just, they just have to get the practice in. And you know what? If the other crimes, yeah, they don't get maybe as investigated as they should have. You can only you can only do so many things at a time, Gareth. You have to make choices. I think, uh, Michael, if we leave it at that, we will be back next week. All the best. Bye.